Locust Radio. Okay, welcome to part two. Uh, we're going to continue with the Irrealist Workers Surveys. Drew, what's next? What kind of Zola-esque slash Twilight Zone-esque ironic punishment would your employer be subject to during the revolution. Okay, we have another one from Don Otis here. They would be freed and forgiven, unlike how they treat us. Then maybe they get eaten by a bear. <laughs> I kind of like that one. I like the idea of seeing oh, yeah. Um, yeah, a rich person. I'm free, I'm free, you suckers. Oh, fuck. It's a grizzly. <laughs> I picked another one by Joy Happiness Gleam, and they wrote, my employers would be drowned in oil and fire. Still is yet to happen. Mm-hmm. Waiting for that. Uh, I, I chose uh, an answer from the wonderful reader Kelsey Goldberg. Invent a game like Candy Crush, but instead of us using a computer to crush fake candy, candy, they use humans to crush fake candy. The humans are harmed in the playing of this game. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> play why that I game, <laughs> right? <laughs> Drew, uh, on to the final question. Question six. You are an alien food critic. What to aliens do human police taste like? <laughs> All right. My, my favorite of this uh, also came from Kelsey. Actually, I'm, I'm biased, of course, but it was a really good one. Like all food, it depends on the quality of the meat. Cadets are killed when they are really scared after being locked in a room with their girlfriend, who they used to beat who is wielding a pipe. Being bludgeoned to death makes the meat tender. This is a delicacy that every worker is given for free on their birthday. It is served with a lime and cilantro. The people who think cilantro tastes like soap did not survive the revolution. (laughs) Cops who ate too many donuts are great for a quick and greasy meal. They have replaced bacon in our post-revolutionary diets. Sergeants are tough and gamey after too much time in the wild, but they are an acquired taste. And this food critic thinks the real appeal is the act of hunting them down, rather than a reflection of the meat itself. DEA agents are slimy, but a wonderful addition to a stew, as they are full of flavor. We do not eat homicide detectives. They are forced to perform, for no money, for crowds of true crime fans. Who still exist because we haven't figured out how to reconcile our prison abolition stance with our love of serial killers no longer being allowed to kill. There are only three homicide detectives left who have not died in captivity. They are available for birthdays, anniversary parties, and commune retreats. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) For this one, I, I picked another one by Beatrice Morale, and they wrote... Despite the humans' monikers, they do not taste like pork. The flavor is bland with an odd saccharine aftertaste, as though the flesh had been marinating in refined donut sugars and entitlement for decades. We much prefer the flavor of the wealthy. And another beautiful response from our reader, June. The charred remains found in great pits after the grand human insurrection would be a bitter and smoky delicacy that would fetch a high price. 
The high price would be attributed to the complete lack of policemen after this insurrection. The chewy texture would be quite pleasant on our wide, double-rowed teeth, and the charred ends would be very satisfying on our leathery tongues. Yeah. Love it. <laughs> Post-humanism for the win. Mm. <laughs> God. All right. Um, yeah. Cool. But somehow cool. more we human. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. For the second half, what we thought we would do is talk about one of the, uh, given that it is not just the spooky season, but that we are still in the middle of the 21st century plague, we thought maybe it might be good to discuss, um, discuss Roger Corman's adaptation of The Mask of the Red Death, the great Poe classic. Using our, uh, our super, uh, Marxist cultural criticism powers, we have connected this movie about a plague to our plague. <laughs> because we are so fucking smart. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that was interesting to me about the Corman adaptation, right? Yeah. Um, is it's not, I mean, the rough scheme of things, there's a guy named Prince Prospero, right? Mm -hmm. And there's a plague. And he and some rich guys hide in a castle. It's very similar to the Poe in that way. But in the Poe short story, uh, Prince Prospero is not a, a Satanist, right? Yeah, no. <laughs> or if he is, it doesn't make it into the story. Poe doesn't think it's relevant. And one of the things that's interesting to me with the Corman movie is very, there's this red-robed figure, right, that appears several times, That and he's got uh, tarot cards, and he mm -hmm. seems to be determining the fate of people by these tarot cards, starting with uh, this old woman who takes the plague back to the village and so on. And he later conspires against Prince Prospero. And I, I know I've, I kept thinking about the sort of the randomness of that, the trickster aspect to it. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. Uh, how tricksters are neither good mm. nor evil. On the one hand, the rich people all die, but so do most of the peasants in the movie. Yeah, um, sure. um, a handful of exceptions aside, and I was thinking about the the, the trick the universe played on us last week, which was mm -hmm. Trump gets COVID nineteen and is now trying to use the fact that he got sick to kill more people with COVID nineteen. Yes, like yes. The, everybody was. So, I remember I was like, it's Christmas morning, like this will. But then you know he gets like a hundred thousand dollars worth of medical treatment for free, mm -hmm. and he's okay. So our, and he's rushed uh, back to like yeah yeah so they had to do interviews with Rush Limbaugh even so <laughs> so like there's this I don't know I just thought it was interesting I wanted to draw the connection uh, yeah, because the justice in the Poe story is fairly getting hoisted on your you know Opatard sort of thing it's very clear the rich people try to hide from the plague the plague gets them anyway in this sort of fantastic idiom. And the movie complicates that a little bit, and I'm curious what people think of that. No, I, I did. That was a thing that I I'd noticed because I never I had never seen the movie before. We watched it together, but I I a huge Poe fan because you know I grew up goth, so that's you know you know Poe. Exactly. And yeah. it, the the thing about the the thing about the Mask of the Red Death is that like, yeah, it's like some rich people in a castle, but it's like 
it's it's like the fact that no one can escape death whereas this was a lot more like rich people flouting it Mm -hmm. it didn't seem quite so overt yeah it seems to me that the poe story is a lot more about arrogance than it is about um privileged um you know frivolity that leads to destruction obviously the plague of our time is just as random as any plague is going to be now that's not to say everyone experiences it the same way or that certain people aren't more vulnerable to it but it is it does upend absolutely everything about the order ultimately or at least has the potential to do that which is one of the reasons why i still kind of i find myself gloating a little bit more still about trump like yes he 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 survived COVID 19 he was always going to, precisely for some of the reasons that Adam said, which is that he has access to the type of medical care that none of us can can barely conceive of, let alone will ever experience. Yeah. And of course he was going to, after he recovered to a certain degree, was going to um, try to use it to his advantage. I mean, we, we knew this was was absolutely coming. In other words, the the cosmic random variable, as we've talked about here before, the sort of you know, the trickster aspect. Well, it's sort of like the plague in Rant, right? It introduces a new a new element into which the definition and the meaning of everything has changed. The good thing is it seems to me that COVID has set Trump's re-election campaign into a tailspin that it probably or very likely won't be able to get out of over, over the next three weeks between when we're recording this and election day now that doesn't mean that the danger is somehow gone i mean regardless of who wins the trump's um, you know proto-fascist minions are going to be you know marching up and down our streets and and really out for blood so you know a, a biden victory even if um it is a landslide against trump is is you know n- not it doesn't fix anything really but it does it you know, it, it it is actually pretty difficult for me to watch the corman mask of the red death by uh without thinking of you know trump getting his just desserts and some of that is in response to you know what actually has happened to him and some of it is also just what we wish would happen to him you know like we we want him to meet the same sticky end that prince prospero does you know it just seems very very clear you know and and again this gets back to what i mentioned in the first no you're right like i I couldn't help but like think of trump especially like every everything that that kept happening the guy they they made him specifically like adam mentioned before like a satanist like he's literally evil he is as evil as they can possibly make him sure and he's like corrupting this 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 like uh peasant girl who he's brought into the castle and stuff it's Mm -hmm. so satisfying getting Mm -hmm. to see his face covered in blood at the end Absolutely. Yeah. Of course, yeah. related to our discussion earlier about uh, monsters and charm, Vincent Price is so much more charming than Donald Trump. Oh, like, 100%, yeah. And, oh, yeah, and so much more seductive in, in, a, yeah. in a particular way in which, like, Vincent Price is sort of like... Uh, there's, a, there's a gender nonconforming sort of aspect to his performance, right? Yes. His performances. Oh, yeah. And of course, Hollywood is using this to make the queer seem monstrous. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. But of course, people didn't actually find Vincent Price monstrous. 
Um, no, but no. they liked him in monster movies, so it's complicated. But, um, but I think that one of the interesting is how that the in the Edgar Allan Poe story, the existential condition is what upends Prince Prospero, right? Mm-hmm. In the movie, Prince Prospero is actively evil, right? He's actively yeah. Yeah. evil, yeah, <laughs> and he's not just upended by the existential condition, but by something else um, that's represented with the hooded red and multicolored figures well, evidently yeah, go yeah. around the countryside causing random death right these trickster yeah, deaths. yeah one of them's green one of them's purple one of them's black like the rooms and, yeah yeah like the rooms exactly yeah yeah and, that he has it's interesting that that so much of the the dialogue especially between prospero and the peasants that he captures to bring into the castle so much of their dialogue is an argument about satanism versus christianity one of the places where I think that gets really interesting is in Prospero's death. Because whereas we might expect, given that this is made like, you know, this is mid-century America, we might expect for, say, Christianity to win out. In fact, Christianity doesn't win out over... it. Um, the, the, the ultimate victory doesn't come from, um, from Satanism or Christianity. It, it comes from death, death itself. There's that one mm-hmm. that one uh, moment when Prospero, who's gloating because he thinks he's he thinks he's he's victorious even over his own court because he's proven himself such a loyal subject to Satan, and Death, the red hooded figure with the tarot cards, just looks at him and says, basically, I don't work for Satan. Yeah, I I am not I I am servant of no one. Basically, is what he's saying. You know, the, the again the inevitability of Death, the way we we have to navigate this oddity of the fact that it, it, it isn't, um, you know, we will exist one day and we won't exist the next. Um, and it's, we, we want, I think we all crave, we crave for it. I, again, I said this in my, my uh, in the post on my blog. I, I think so much of our mythologies are based around death or, life after it because we want death to be the ultimate judgment and we want that ultimate judgment to be just um and so i think that's something that that comes across in that um you know in the corman film because it's not like a it's not a horror film in the way that we um you know um have a tendency to think about them in the 21st century jump scares gore all that type of stuff which you know on this obviously in this discussion we know there's more to it uh, but nonetheless, you know, it, like Corman made it, it, it's very much like a hammer horror film, right? It's incredibly colorful. Um, and it's, it's horror comes more from the story than it does from anything that's actually scary happening in it. In it. It, 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 it comes from creating a very surreal mood, which you find very much in the, um, the, the dream sequence. Yeah. I just had this wonderful thought while you were talking. Prince Prospero asking to talk to Death's manager. <laughs> yeah, yeah, more or less. <laughs> but that would yeah. have been a good well, scene. Well, you don't I want know your bo- I know your boss. Yeah. I want you to give me ten more years of life and the good appetizers, not this shit. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. God. Instead of a dance macabre at the end, it's just um, it's just a another scene from a random Kinko's. 
basically it becomes <laughs> one of the interesting things is is prospero he's not he's actively evil but he's uh his evil is contingent right it's not like he's not like a maniacal like uh He's not like Maniac Cop. He's not just killing no. anybody. No, he's become evil because he thinks it's going to give him eternal life. But like with Hop Toad, when Hop Toad gets his revenge against that that asshole guy that dresses oh. up like a gorilla, yeah, or Patrick Grade McGee, a. Yeah. Patrick McGee's character, yeah, fuck, yeah, yeah. who was also in a what, A Clockwork Orange, anyway. But like because, uh, also, um, also Marat Saad, he played Saad, mm -hmm. he played the Marquis de Saad in um, um, Peter Brook's yeah. uh, adaptation. I always uh, like Murat Saad better live. It's so good live. It's the movie to anyway. But um, yeah. sorry, in the round anyway. But uh, yeah. <laughs> so when he strings him up in the in the gorilla costume and sets him on fire because of, he had attacked uh, Hob, he had attacked Hop Toad's uh, partner, yeah, um, the other dancer. Yeah. You know, this is a really satisfying like you know revenge that he gets. And at that moment, you're kind of on the same side as Prince Prospero because he actually tips Hop Toad for his creative immolation. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 So, <laughs> yeah. I think that the Hop Toad character is really interesting because that was, you know, obviously that's not in the original Poe story. That's in another Poe story called Right. Hop exactly. Dog, which actually I should Hop have read before. Yeah. yeah Hop. Well, no. In, in it's in the film they call him Hop Toad. In, oh, okay. In the original Poe story, it's Hop Frog. Um, I don't know why they changed it, but it's um, and again, you know, Hop Hop Frog. The in, in the original story, Hop Frog is, you know, the the human embodiment of tricksterism, of the 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 just desserts that get visited on the powerful. In the adaptation, it, it's very interesting that that they mix those two stories because it, in some ways, it shows a difference between revenge as it's wreaked by a human or as it's wrought by a human um and history's revenge if you will as embodied by the red cloaked figure you know we, we we might call it science's revenge or just the revenge of fate or whatever but i think for our purposes in this discussion it's more history's revenge um and to see the two right next to each other is very um interesting um because it in some ways, maybe it poses a choice or a wager to us if we want to get totally um, Benjaminian about it. Just the, sort of the wager of history. Which do we want to... Which revenge do we want to see brought out? Is it the revenge of just history or fate that can also take down whole villages with it? Or is it the, 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 the trickster hiding in the back who actually has some human agency or who has agency because he is human, you know? I mean, it clearly poses a wager also to uh, Vincent Price's Prospero and that he doesn't recognize the enactment of his own fate shortly to come, right? Yeah, yeah. That there's really not... He likes Hoptoad and Hoptoad's dancing partner. I'm forgetting that character's name. Uh, Esmeralda. So he's fine with that righteous revenge right but he doesn't see the same thing happening to him in through his actions with the village <clears throat> but it does raise a question about like the agency of the villagers although they they do conspire to some limited extent with fate tish how do you think because i th this was such a this story was such a big part of your 
teenage years, I guess, when you were uh, a goth. What do you... <laughs> Am I wrong? Why I just... No, you're not wrong at all. No. Okay, cool. All right. <laughs> How do you think the two compare in terms of, like, communicating the kind of gothicism that was important? I tend to be someone who, you know, goths get made fun of so, so much still to this day, but I think there's still so much critical charge in the goth subculture. Like, yes, it's, it's over-marketed and goddammit, Hot Topic is stupid. I don't disagree with that. But it's like, there is still, you know, that kind of mandate to step outside of time. Again, maybe hmm. trying to relate it back to Rant. To step outside of it and recreate it or sort of rediscover, to, to, to revalorize the, the dead and forgotten is a really, really, um, you know, that's obviously basically what motivates the goth culture. Because on one hand, the Corman film is so intensely colorful, it's hard to imagine, say, like a um, goths being into it. Though goths also love Vincent Price at the same time. How does it compare, like, in terms of the the way that you experience a story when you were into goth subculture? When I was when I was a goth, the kind of like goth stuff that I was consuming wasn't the stuff that was super serious. It was like it was like Voltaire and and Rasputina and you know mm, a little bit more like yeah. the cabaret goth stuff. So ah, honestly, like the right, Roger okay. Corman adaptation, like that that would have really that would have been great. Yeah, that I, I does, really think that, that does line up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm 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 honestly like really sad that I didn't get to experience that one at the time. All I got was The Mask of the Red Death by Poe, which is fantastic, but it yeah. it's a very short story and it's not particularly rich. I mean, yeah. it's some of the some of the visuals are rich and the and the the sort of you know the the emotions of the stories are rich, but you don't get a lot of like scenes being created necessarily i mean you yeah. you get the rooms and you get the you know the braziers full of fire casting the casting the lights through and stuff and so you get some visual there but like i you know some of the one of the things that really made the roger corman adaptation good for me was like those moments seeing like all of the rich people crowded around dancing and them sort of performing and being yeah, the yeah. the weird entertainment like that that almost felt like darker than the original mm. to me because you know like what what prince Bospero was in in the roger corman adaptation was much more like you know he was a little bit cartoony he was campy and stuff but mm -hmm. you know there was still a cruelty to like other people that i think would definitely resonate more with goth mm. people if i'm honest because a lot of the time the the, the criticism that we have so I'm talking like I'm still goth. The criticism that goth people tend to have <laughs> is that is that the world around them rejects any kind of sadness or or anything mm. like that. And so goths are like, no, you know, we want to. The point is that we're shining the light on this stuff. That's why we embrace the evil and the spooky because it mm. exists. And that's yeah. So I, I honestly think the Roger Corman one is probably more goth than the wow. Poe one. Okay, I know. I, someone's going to come really for me on that one. <laughs> <laughs> this is really important because the gothic as a concept isn't about a particular set of clothing or bouncing up yeah. and down where yeah. music yeah. happens and having dark eyeliner, right? right. It's, it's about an understanding of the sense of loss in relationship to time, right? As Tish yeah. and Alex were talking about. It's and, romanticism, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's romantic. It's, it, all romanticism can be progressive or reactionary or sure. whatever. But, like, I think in some ways, one of the reasons why the 1964 Roger Corman 
Mask of the Red Death can be seen as more goth, possibly. There I go. It's because that temporal loss is closer to us. Like the, uh, the sets, yeah, yeah, they yeah. look like like really well done sets from Batman or uh, uh, yeah. Star uh, Star yeah. Trek, right? Yes, it's yeah, it's, yeah. it's clearly high modernism has produced these sets mm-hmm. and then tacked mm-hmm. on some old things to them, and they're really colorful and they're mm-hmm. well shot, but not a lot of money involved, quite clearly. Mm-hmm. And so there's you can feel its you can feel its proximity in time as well as its humanness. Whereas if Hollywood is going to produce a Mask of the Red Death now, it would be unbearably dark. Oh yeah, it would just be um, yeah. hyper realistic. Yeah, it would be and, just lots of grays and you know right yeah. with no yeah. no with no human scale. Now I think the Poe yeah. short story does have a human scale. But it's written Definitely, like 150 yeah. years ago. It's sure, like sure. Uh, it's mm-hmm. everyone ever connected to that has been dead for a long time. Mm-hmm, so it's mm-hmm. like, um, and it's closer to the original aesthetic of goth subculture um, coming out of punk in the late 70s in England. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Rather mm-hmm. than the gothic as an aspect of temporal displacement related to culture. I really enjoy, I enjoy the hell out of it, you know, um, and not too much gratuitous sexism for a Roger Corman movie. Yeah. No, I was pleasantly surprised. Mm-hmm. I'm used to seeing, like, in a movie from the 60s, like, you know, it, and even, like, obviously the way that they treated the, mm-hmm. the, the peasant that he brought into the castle, whose name escapes me, uh, wasn't, like, spectacular Francesca. or anything. Francesca. But, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Francesca. Yeah, Francesca, that's yeah, it, yeah. 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 You know, he treated her like a peasant, but not necessarily like a, a dumb peasant woman, you know? Mm-hmm, like, it mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it was sort of, it was classist, it felt like, condescension. He wants to win her over, which also brings true. its own problematic aspects, and he has his mm. his his more regular con, consort, Juliana, who mm-hmm. is very jealous, and so, you know, that plays into certain tropes. But he yeah. is trying to win her over intellectually. He's not just saying to, the, to Francesca, you're mine. He's saying, no, I want to win you as another one in league with Satan. I want you to experience yeah. sort of the, the eternal life with me and eternal pleasure. Which, again, gets to something about Vincent Price is so good in those types of roles. I find Vincent Price to be a really, really fascinating uh, individual. You know, like now he's sort of this minor queer icon. Um, and he was bisexual when he was alive. Like his his daughter... In her biography of him, she's like, I'm about as close to certain as you can be that my father had, um, you know, had had sex with men and had intimate relationships with men. But yeah, he is just so effortlessly charming, even when he's playing someone who's just a completely evil fuck. He brings some some depth to his roles, which you can really see in some of his other stuff. You know, he starts out his life as an arch reactionary because he's from a tremendously wealthy um, and conservative St. Louis family. Um, by the end of his life, he's he's campaigning for gay rights, even if he's not completely open about his bisexuality. It's like campaigning against Anita Bryant and things like that. Um, but then in the middle of it, he he uh, goes along with the Hollywood blacklist in the 1950s, which again, I think may have just been him trying to make sure that he wasn't outed because by that point, the Red Scare had also become a Lavender Scare. Um, and it's really, so, you know, like, I, naming names to McCarthy and Hulak is pretty unforgivable, if you ask me, but there's also, there's, there's, there's gradations within that. And he's, he's just a tremendously fascinating person. I think, in some ways, he 
kind of encapsulates a lot of the contradictions of what it meant to make relevant art, where there's always something to hint at mm -hmm. that makes things, be it queerness or hidden radicalism, whatever, or the type of critique that the goth that the goths will have, which is like the temporal displacement and the, the bird's eye, a bit more of a bird's eye view that it gives it of um, of society. There's always something. There's all, always something that you're kind of hinting at, mm -hmm. and you have to hint at it because the dominant society is so repressive, has made so many things verboten. So you have to hint at it, but hinting at it sometimes makes it a lot more interesting and gives it a lot more of a critical charge. And I think you see that in some of the, some of the Mask of the Red Dead, um, to a certain degree. Well, definitely, for sure. It, it, it creates, like, a, like, the psychological aspect of it requires a lot of actual dialogue that's not just expositionary or mm -hmm. driving the narrative. <clears throat> like, actual conversations about these things, which itself reads as gothic and, and kind of alien to most of the mm -hmm. things that we're seeing these days. But also, again, to like bring it, Vincent Price's character, regardless of, you know, his personal or political limitations and so on, he presents this intelligent, charming, evil, but not unthoughtful uh, mm -hmm. prince. Mm -hmm. And like in the Edgar Allan Poe story, the idea is to hide from the virus or the plague or what, mm -hmm. whatever it is, or bacteria. Mm -hmm. To contrast it to our ruling class, yeah. many, many, many of whom have done that, right? You know, yeah. Um, yeah. the smarter ones. But we yeah. have a substantial number of Prince Prosperos who have taunted it, right? Like, <laughs> this, is, this is the thing that gets me. It's like, and I, I remember we, we noted this in something we wrote, like, that even stupider, I think in our last editorial, Unlike Prince Prospero and Edgar Allan Poe, they've taunted this shit. Like the uh, upper middle class douchebags going to the bars and coughing on each other and yeah, getting wasted yeah. and like being surprised. So it makes one wonder, too. Both in the 1840s in the United States, when, or I think it was the 40s when Poe wrote it, yeah. and in 1964, you're talking about fairly powerful, a very, fairly powerful empire that's doing fairly well compared to our decadent empire that is collapsing in on itself, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And so then mm -hmm. I think back to like some of the, some of the things where the professor is talking in, in, uh, uh, in rant about the societies mm -hmm. that were felled by various plagues and viruses and so on. Of course, when a, when an empire is brought down by a plague, it looks very much like, you know, what Marx talked about, the, the, the common ruin of the contending classes, um, which is, again, bringing back to the, you know, who would we rather have carry out our revenge? Us, as exhibited by someone like Hoptoad, or the Red Death, as exhibited by the, you know, a, a plague, some sort of cosmic trickster, as exhibited by the, 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 uh, the Red Rope one. In Evan Calder Williams' book, Combining an Even Apocalypse, what he basically asserts is a very interesting idea, which is rather than completely shun everything that alienates us, including the, the off-kilter relationship between life and death, we lean into it and we conceive of ourselves as gravediggers of 
the current order, we can rather than staving off apocalypse, which we absolutely have to do, but we also need to conceive of ourselves as becoming apocalypse, as becoming the ones who reveal the inner machinations of the commodity form of capitalism, of empire, of racism, and oppressions of all sorts, and we expose them in the apocalyptic way. The, the apocalypse also means revelation, if you want to go by the old biblical definition of it. We'll never be able to control death, right? But the idea of a, of a fully democratic society in which everyone can reach their fullest potential is about as close as we can ever get to having death be fair, because it means everyone gets a share a fair shake at life and have an interrupt. So the idea, rather than have it be interrupted by violence, war, being worked to death in, in an unfair, like, you know, sweatshop somewhere, the idea of us becoming the limit between life and death, using that as a heuristic is a very, very fascinating one to me. I was thinking, we need to, like, to go back to Rant, we need to be the ones that put the body in the Grange Hall. And also this gets back to, to Rant also, us being the tricksters. Rather than leaving the tricksterism to the cosmic random variable, or even worse, the alt-right, who are the ones with that initiative, we need to be the ones to, to be that trickster. To inhabit that uncomfortable place between life and death so that we can redefine the necropolitics of our era. Who knows if we'll actually be able to make it happen, but uh, I mean, at this point, we don't have a we don't have a choice except to sort of try to build a, in that direction. We have in each of us the ability to, uh, I think, turn our oppressors into uh, fiery bear pinatas, and I think we should do that. <laughs> Is it a bear pinata or a gorilla? Oh, sorry, shit, you're right, gorilla, I misspoke. Goddamn. <laughs> No, all, all power oh, yeah. to all power to hop toad. All power to hop toad. Yeah, I think that's a way to yeah. All power to hop toad. Well, maybe that's actually a good place to put it. To, to, uh, I think to so. It, to leave it with the all power to hop toad. All of this, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then maybe we'll just have like some outro music and. One, two, one, two, three, four. Thank you for listening to Locust Radio. Locust Radio is produced by Drew Franzblau with music by Omni Soul. You can find Omni Soul on Bandcamp, and there's a link in our show notes. Your hosts were Adam Turrell, Alexander Billet, and Tish Markley. Thank you for listening, and please join us next time. Mm-hmm.